we're going to look this morning at 1 Peter, and the topic is being set apart. Being set apart. And our lives being set apart as God's people. So far, we have looked in 1 Peter at Peter coming to the Gentile community particularly, but to Christians, and saying, live your lives mindful that you are resident aliens. You are pilgrims here. You're not tourists, but you're not completely citizens of this world. And as resident aliens, we want you to fix your hope, hook your heart into the promised home that you have in heaven with God above. And as resident aliens with that hope, you'll be able to endure trial and also face temptation with fresh courage. And then this morning, Peter says, and as you live your lives as resident aliens with a heart full of hope and the promise of heaven, God is your God, then your conduct should reflect that you're different. You're God's people. So you should look like God. Please stand once again as we read God's Word. God speaks to us through His Word and ministers in the Gospel speak by the power of the Spirit about His Word. Verse 13. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your heart fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is God's word. Please be seated. This morning, you'll see in your outline that there is a problem. And the problem is that when we hear the term holy, or we hear as P 
Peter's letter to this congregation, to our congregations, to Christians worldwide, when Peter writes, be holy as the Lord your God is holy, there's an internal reaction. And that reaction is is a little repulse toward the idea of holiness. And yet we're God's people. The problem comes because we think of holiness most in terms of a moral code, which it is, the Ten Commandments, for instance, or the Sermon on the Mount. We think of the commands. We think of the imperatives of the Scripture. But if you only think of holiness in that manner, it's going to feel stuffy. It may even feel prudish. It's going to feel restrictive. And for some of us, it just feels doggone unachievable. I've tried. It doesn't work. I can't be like that. I might be able to get five of the ten, nine of the ten, but I have a real struggle with this one over here. I want you to see this morning that holiness is indeed the Ten Commandments and the the indicatives, the commands of Scripture of what our conduct and our behavior should look like. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Holiness is more than that. I want you to see this morning, if you miss everything else, that the Hebrew for holiness, the Hebrew word for holiness means set apart. It means that Something is holy. So let's look at what is holiness. This table this morning is a holy table. This table itself is not moral. You lift up the skirt and you're going to see that it's got four legs. It's got some blemishes on it. It's not even a perfect table. It doesn't obey the Ten Commands. But it is holy because it's set apart for the Lord. And it's set apart. Another word, a theological term, is consecrated. It's been reserved. We, use, we don't use these utensils for anything else until Sunday morning. This is what Peter is after with this congregation. Be mindful that this is a Gentile, a dominantly Gentile congregation. And he has used earlier such terms as in verse 1 of chapter 1, he said, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. That was terminology, exiles, elect, that previously had only been reserved for the Jewish community. Now, Peter is Jewish. And Peter, when he became a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple, and then an apostle after resurrection had a bit of a struggle with the Gentile community. He believed that the Jews were more pure because of their dietary laws and because of their conduct. And God, through a vision, came and rolled out a sheet with many formerly unclean things in them. And he said, there is no unclean thing that makes a man unholy anymore. He said the thing that makes a man holy is not his race. It's not his uh, gender. It's not whether he's Jew or Gentile. 
It's not his good behavior or bad behavior. What makes a man holy is not his conduct and not his diet. Peter, what makes a man holy is faith in Christ alone. Is their life set apart now? Has God set them apart through Christ who he set apart to affect that? And Peter was like, I get it. And so the language that Peter uses to Gentiles is saying, you're like the Jews. And the Jews are like you. There is no dividing wall now. It's a, a clue is in this text this morning. If you look at verse 16 where it says, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you have your Bibles, which we highly recommend, and we also provide Bibles, if you don't own a Bible, you feel free to take one of the Bibles that we furnish for uh, assistance and worship. Please take it. It's yours. Uh, we want you to have it. But you'll have a footnote there that tells you verse 16 comes from Leviticus eleven forty-four. Now, Peter, Peter goes to Leviticus in support for what he's saying rather than Exodus. That is significant, and here's why. Because what he is saying is if he wanted to say, be holy, obey, be, be more obedient. You guys are slacking. You're, you're drifting. There's mission drift going on. Eat right, dress right, talk right. Now, he is going to say that, but that is secondary. He's going, to say, he's going to have a word to say about conduct that we're going to look at in just a moment, but he's not specific. What he is more focused on, he would have gone to Exodus with the Ten Commandments if he wanted to say, be holy, meaning moral conduct. But what he does, he goes to Leviticus. Leviticus doesn't have the Ten Commandments. It doesn't have any moral code in it. What it does have is it has plenty of instructions of how to set aside priests for ministry. How men can become holy by being set apart. In other words, the priests were not selected because they were the purest already. They were men who were pulled out and set apart and made pure by being set apart. Same thing with the temple furnishings. Imagine a lampstand. In Leviticus, it will tell you how a lampstand, an ordinary lampstand, becomes holy. He says an ordinary lampstand becomes holy when you take it from the personal, the self-life. You take it from your home. You take it from your use and your exclusive use, and you bring it to the priest. And you say, I dedicate this to God. I want it to be used for God and God alone. The priest takes it. He puts it in the tabernacle or in the sanctuary or the church and it becomes holy not because in and of itself it's now pure not because it's obeying a moral code but because it is dedicated solely set apart devoted to God's use that's what Peter is talking about and he applies it to our life which comes first the chicken or the egg I answered that a long time ago because I believe that God didn't create an egg first for Adam and Eve to wait around to see what hatched to name it. I believe he just created a chicken. And then that chicken would go on to produce eggs. Our holy conduct, because we're going to go on to the second point now, and I want to I give application as Peter does as to how we, what this looks like in our life. How do I become this kind of set-apart 
holy. Not simply holy by my, you know, dutiful obedience to a moral code. But the, the chicken has life. And it produces, it, it obeys, and it conforms out of its nature, and it has an egg. A chicken has life and identity. It comes first, and then it produces. And by its conduct, by its behavior, by its nature, produces an egg. We start with a holy life by being set apart. By saying, God, I come to you. This is how we all, if you're a Christian this morning, this is how you became a Christian. I hope you didn't say, I've never met anyone that did this, by the way. I hope you didn't say, I really want to follow God. I really want the forgiveness of sins that's offered through Christ. But first, I'm going to go out and I'm going to obey every one of the Ten Commandments almost to perfection. Then I'm going to come. No, we come the messies the miserable messies that we are. We come with our oily sin stains to Him and we say, except you wash me, I cannot be clean. I give you my life if you but would take it. I set my part. I am done looking at other areas. I'm going to not set my my life apart for them. I'm setting it apart for you. Take my life. Take my all. And God says, I will take your life I will forgive it. I've set your life apart now. You are holy. That's the chicken. You're born again. Not with perishable things, but with imperishable things. You're now born again. Now you produce the egg. Walk out of your identity. Walk out of your separateness. Walk out of this set-apart life. Peter says a couple of things here by way of application. Because... The question could be, how do you become holy? How do I, how do I move to this set-apart life? Peter says in verse 13, prepare your minds for action. And some of you, again, are going to have a footnote. Or if you have a NASB or a King James Version, maybe some of you committed this to memory and you remember the language of the King James, which is, gird up your loins. And be sober. There's two images that he gives here. But both of them refer to the mind. He says, let's start with the mind and your thinking. And then your thinking will lead to conduct or the body or the will. And then as you are doing those things with increased discipline, your mind is now thinking correctly. Your body is engaged in action. And it's it's motivated all the while with a heart that's pumping the red blood of the gospel so that my conduct is no longer serving me, but all of my life becomes devoted to serve God and to serve others. And so Peter says, let's start with your mind. Imagine like uh, an ancient Jew or, you know, they, they wore long flowing robes and they would have a big belt. And if they had to do some work, they would just kind of gird up those, their, their long flowing robes and they'd tuck it into their belt. We can imagine in the prodigal son when he was seen from a long distance coming that his father would kind of gird it up and he would just run so he wouldn't be tripped up by those things. So what Peter is prescribing here is a mental discipline. He's saying there's something that we need to do 
if we're going to be set apart, there's something that we need to consciously and mentally do. And he says, we need to be sober people. Um, he is not so much talking here about, uh, you know, uh, alcoholics, uh, you know, uh, he's not talking about alcohol or sobriety in that fashion physically, as much as he's talking about those things that can intoxicate us mentally. Mental pollution, mental intoxication. There are things that, there are things that will steal your mind and will steal your thinking. And unless you are conscious... They will steal territory in your mind and in your thinking. And that thinking will influence your conduct. Let me give you an example. And these are good things, by the way. Good things to think about. They're intrinsically good. But how much is your thinking occupied by career? How much do you think about your career or your job? How much do you think about possessions? How much do you think about relationships? How much do you think about friendships? How much do you think about recreation? How much do you just think about other things? The test is that if we do not think, as Peter encourages us to think, the end result is going to be Increased anxiety and joylessness. Look at what Peter says. If you look on him in verse, if you look at verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, verse 19, the precious blood of Christ. Uh, verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Verse 21, now you're believers. Okay. So I gave you the cliff notes. If you, if you think in the beginning God created a perfect world, it was perfect, it was paradise. But the human race rebelled against the Creator and the world became broken. But God was not satisfied to leave men and women in their broken world. So he entered through Jesus Christ. And he paid a terrible price to die such that we could be forgiven and now receive the promise of a new world to come. You cannot take that away from a Christian. You can place a Christian in the most fierce temptation and with those thoughts, he will be strengthened. You can place him in the fiercest trial. You can bring him up to martyr him. And with the promise of his forgiveness and his inheritance, you can take a Christian's life, but you can't take their joy. But if they don't think about that, if we don't think about that, the test is we're anxious. I meet a lot of people that, that think that Christians are mindless. They think that you as a congregation on Sunday morning, you're just kind of like drones. You just, you just come in 
you mechanically bring a Bible or open a Bible, you hear a sermon, you kind of sing a few songs, uh, pray a mantra, and then you leave. But you're mindless. But you have Bibles because you're not mindless. Christians are thinking Christians. I think it's the reverse. I think those that are not Christians, they don't want to think. I mean, what would they think about? What's, who made you? What's your identity? How do you face trial? Where are you going? Oh, I don't want to think about all those things. That's just, man, that can be depressing. Hey, I just kind of live each day for itself. Christians are thinking Christians. And Peter says, think on these things as you face trial, as you face temptations. Don't get mentally intoxicated. Don't get all wound up as you think about these other things. And if you don't discipline yourself to think about these things, these other things will steal territory. They will overwhelm you. What does that look like? I think it can look like, I mean, I used to end every sermon with two applications. Go home, read your Bibles, and pray. It's still, it's still the best application that you can give. But here, Peter would be talking to a congregation that they didn't have Bibles. They didn't have scrolls that they could look up. Okay, Gospel of Matthew, all right, let's go to Leviticus. What they had was they had the sermons. They had the community of believers. They had a mind that would latch on to these truths and they would meditate on them over and over and over again. And if they came into possessions of documents, then they would study them. That gird up your loins, that word right there to prepare your minds, that's what's used of scholars. They would study these things deeply and not study it for knowledge, but meditate on it for wisdom and meditate on it for life. Are you a thinking Christian? What does your thought life look like? Is it just overwhelmingly busy with other things? How much does God occupy your thoughts? How much does God occupy your thoughts? Or how anxious are you? How anxious are you? Anxiousness, joylessness, that's symptomatic of other things occupying our thoughts rather than these things which are pure and hopeful and full of confidence. Secondly, by way of application, the body. He says a term there that we don't really like very well in verse 17. He says, if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The word there for fear is not cowardice. It's not the word for trembly weakness. It's the word for awe and the word for wonder. It's the, it's the bigness of God. You don't fear God as a punishing judge. Look what he uses. In fact, he uses the term there. He says he's a father who judges. Now, fathers can be stern and they can be strict. But they don't, they're not cruel, and they don't destroy their children. And so he's saying, I want you to be full of awe and wonder as you conduct your life and you live it before this great and mighty God. Uh, whenever uh, 
Emerson granddaughter now, uh, she loves to wrestle. Now that's R-A-S-S-L-E, wrestle. You know, she wants to wrestle, pop pop, let's wrestle. And so I'll let her, you know, win or pin me, and I'll be like, oh, wow, you're squishing me. Oh, oh, you better watch out. The monster's coming. The, the Hulk, I'm turning into the Hulk. And she just squeals because then it's like, and I pick the monster up and I show my true strength, at least strong enough to pick up a five-year-old. And so I show my true strength. Arr, the monster, no, no, don't drop me, don't drop me, don't drop me. All the while loving it. And if you interview Emerson today, I think she'll still give you the right answer. And you ask her, who is the scariest monster? Who's the strongest man in the world? Who's the most fierce man in the world? You know who she's going to say? Me. And if you ask her who's going to protect her to the extent that they would lay down their life and they would apply all that fierceness on their behalf, she'll say, pop up. As God's children, we boast about our God. There is no one like our God. And we fear Him because we just to see Him in our mind's eye and as we begin to think about Him, certainly as we read and we study the depths of His character and His deeds and His work and His plan, we're overwhelmed. We're awestruck. That's the fear that he's talking about. And he says, it's out of that reverence, it's out of that awesomeness that says, I want to serve him. I will give him anything. All right, I know that I've gone long. But a quick illustration to show what I'm talking about. Do you remember the story in 2 Samuel chapter 23? It's listing David's mighty men. And there's three men that they hear David, he is at the cave of Adullam. He's in a desert, it's dry, he's thirsty. And he remembers a well at Bethlehem. And these three mighty men, they overhear David say, man, I, I wish I could have a drink of water from that well at Bethlehem. It was sweet, it was cool, there's nothing like that. He sighs. He has a longing. That's all they need to hear. They're off. And it says that they broke through the battle lines. They broke through the Philistine guard. They, 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 they snuck up to the well. Who knows that there was loss of life. There was certainly the risk of their life. They got water. They brought it back and they gave it to David. And David is like, I am... How can I drink this? How can I drink this? Because I'm not worthy even of this. I am but a man. In other words, you, 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 you gave your whole life. You risked your whole life just on a sigh. The Christian life is such that holiness in our conduct... It's becoming not so much a command, do this because you're a Christian, but it's, it's changing me because God has set apart His life for me. 
And because I've now set apart my life for him, and as I begin to think about him more and more and more, he becomes more and more beautiful. So that all he's got to do is just sigh, and I'll give it to him. I will obey. Lastly, Peter gives an expression of what it looks like. And it's a, it's a large expression, and he's not very specific. But the large expression is, is that we will love one another. He said, if you have set apart your life to love God and experience His love, if you are thinking about Him, and then your actions are beginning to show your identity in this set-apart life, he says, the biggest reflection is how you love one another. And that's the gospel. The gospel is, is that I begin to think of how I was unworthy, but God has forgiven me of my sins. And he has now, he looks upon me and he sees me as a son and a daughter. As I look out at the Christian community, and he is talking here particularly about those that are Christians, but he says, as you look at one another, don't just simply see one another as a brother or a sister in proximity. See one another as a real brother, a real sister, because they also have been forgiven of their sins. And so we're able to, to love one another even as we are loved. And God says, I rejoice in that. Because when you love one another, it's the same as me loving them. Every father loves for his sons and his daughters to love one another. And there's this harmony that's taking place. And he's saying... As you have received this love, so love one another. What does that look like at Two Rivers? There's no moral code. There's no moral commands. I mean, we certainly have a lot of suggestions. But let me say, and if you're, if you're not a part of Two Rivers and you're a, a guest, welcome this morning. We're so glad you're here. But you can, I'd, I'd like for you to think about this as well. We're finding that there are more and more Christians who have set their life apart, but they feel very, very alone. Oh, we worship on Sunday morning. We may even go to Bible study or community group together. But even in a group, we feel very, very alone. We're looking for spiritual friendships. Oh, there are a lot of uh, synonyms, disciples, uh, mentors, mentees. But it really boils down to brothers and sisters and friendship spiritually sharing what they're thinking, illustrating their walk, and all the while loving one another. Who are you in close relationship with? What fellow exiles are you associating with? Is there somebody that is speaking into your life? And is there someone that you're speaking into? If not, you may be drifting back into that selfish me and mine mode. And God would say, I haven't set you apart for that. I set you apart for my holy use. I set you apart for myself. And the biggest use is to not simply love God, but also to love one another. Let us pray. Father, it's a great and cosmic thought 
that this is your plan for a people to be holy. And that this plan was yours before the world began. Can't wrap my mind around that. But before the world began, you said, I am going to send a holy son set apart, sanctified, set apart to be the bridegroom. And he is going to woo and love and ransom a people who will be set apart as the bride. And Father, you are making that bride and want to make that bride more and more beautiful, more and more radiant, more and more joyful, less anxious until that great wedding in the heavens, that great marriage feast of the Lamb. So Father, you are committed to continue to set us apart and to make us beautiful and holy. And all you ask is that we would yield. We would yield to happiness. We would yield to your beautification process. Like Esther before the king. Twelve months of beauty treatments. And then she was presented to the king. Father, through Christ you have declared us beautiful now. And you are ever working to prepare us for that further union with him. So Father, prepare our hearts now to receive this table even in its likeness to that marriage feast, because of Christ we are in union with Him now. And by taking this, we accept His death on our behalf, and we yield our life to be further set apart for His use in Christ's name. We pray, amen.